Hello and welcome to season two of Unit on Chain, a podcast series from Unit London. My name is Abigail Miller and I'm the Associate Director of Web3 at Unit London. And my name is Phoebe Forster and I'm the Web3 Platform Assistant. Unit on Chain offers a ground for critical discussions for artists and thought leaders from the Web3 ecosystem. We are dedicating season two of our podcast to creative AI, coinciding with the perfect air, a curated online exhibition bringing together a world-class group of artists who are using AI in captivating new ways. On view exclusively via our website from March 15th, 2023. Hi, and welcome back to Unit on Chain. Today, we're speaking to Daniel Ambrosi, an experimental landscape artist who uses AI to create semi-abstract images of the natural world to call into question the nature of perception. Daniel Ambrosi is a groundbreaking digital artist based in California. He combines large-scale landscape photography with artificial intelligence to create uncannily immersive and idyllic scenic experiences. He holds a Bachelor of Architecture and a Master's in 3D Graphics from Cornell University. His works have been shown internationally. In 2022, he had a solo exhibition at Ocean Blue Vault in Half Moon Bay, California. Additionally, his works have been featured in publications, including SESMA and Slanted Magazines and RUSI Journal. Hello, we are so excited to have Daniel Ambrosi here on Unit on Chain. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Good morning. So to begin with, we wanted you to explain the nature of your practice as an experimental landscape artist and your effect on its viewers. Yeah, you know, the motivation for this project, and that's really the way I see it the last 12 years, has been a single art project, was really based on the strong desire to share with others these powerful experiences I was having in nature in great landscapes and amazing cityscapes and so on. And trying to capture and convey those experiences with photography alone just wasn't cutting it for me. Over time, I realized that the experience that I was having in those places was more than just visual. It was also visceral, you know, felt and cognitive. If the scene was powerful enough to take my breath away, I would start waxing philosophical about the nature of seeing, the nature of reality, and so on. And I realized over time that if I was to try to share that experience with others, photography, that fullness of experience would be lost in translation. I needed to find a way in plain English to create beautiful images that make people feel and think. And, you know, I have a background in design and 3D graphics and a number of digital art chops that I can bring to bear. I've been making digital art in one form or another for over 40 years. So as a shameless opportunist, I explored a lot of different techniques and tools to try to get that experience to translate into a two-dimensional image. And it turns out that what really made that possible was the combination of original photography, computer graphics, and artificial intelligence, kind of in equal parts. In some ways, you might call me an accidental AI artist. I did not set out to try to create art using AI. And in fact, when I started with AI almost eight years ago, I was using a tool that wasn't even made to create art. It was not trained on art. Deep Dream, which I had superscaled for my purposes by a couple of brilliant engineers, was really part of a computer vision system designed to do image recognition. It's trying to classify images. And in the process, it kind of hallucinates but it, it accomplished my goal, and along with the other techniques that I was using. 
So that in a nutshell really sort of brings a full circle. I, I had a very simple, pure motivation that persists to this day. And the tools that I'm using are really means to that end. That's really interesting. Thank you. And I know you mentioned that you have some experience with traditional photography. And I know you got a degree in architecture from Cornell University. And I was wondering sort of what tools and lessons you learned from those traditional practices that you still use and bring into your digital techniques or sort of have you completely moved away from them? Yeah, no, that experience taught me so much in terms of design techniques, art history, urban planning, architecture. There's so many lessons to learn there. And when I really started to develop this project and saw that the best way to do this involved trying to reach people emotionally and mentally, I realized that in the past, master landscape painters accomplished that to varying degrees, and it behooved me to really take another look at that art history. And I've since gone very deep. I've been to countless museums and collected tons of art books, really studying what the 400-year tradition of landscape painting in art history has, uh, has brought us. So my work is very informed not only by my traditional education, but also by my continuation of, of learning and in trying to absorb lessons from the past. I would love to go back to how like specific art movements have influenced your work. As you have said, long history of landscape painting has been integral, but I want you to talk about the integration of like abstract expressionism, cubism, and surrealism in your work, and kind of if there's very specific nods to specific artists. Sure. You know, it's funny, this 400-year history has an arc to it that just by following my nose on this project, my work has created a similar arc, but in a microcosmic kind of way. The thing about the master landscape painters, which really in the representational sense, the, the, the ones that were doing realistic landscapes, which kind of reached a pinnacle during the Hudson River School in the early 1800s, these folks painted what they saw. There was no photography at the time. Photography started kind of in the midst of the Hudson River School, and that created its own level of disruption, not dissimilar from what we're seeing today with the AI art generators, which is kind of funny and ironic. But uh, the main thing is that they painted the way they saw. The first thing I realized was that cameras don't see the way humans see. Humans see with a much wider field of view, with much higher dynamic range. We can see detail in the bright and dark areas. And with healthy eyes, everywhere you turn, you see incredible detail. And this is the way these folks painted. Over time, and partly in reaction to the, ad the advent of photography, you had Impressionism evolve. And this really introduced, you know, okay, so if cameras now can possibly capture the world somewhat the way we see, what else is it about the way we see that, that is uniquely human? And I think the Impressionists, starting with the evolution of J.M.W. Turner's work, which you might call Proto-Impressionism, and obviously with the you know, Master Impressionists, they really started to peek under the hood of their own visual processing systems, I think, 
and presented us with works that really make us question what we're seeing. Uh, I went to a couple of Monet retrospectives. The first one here in San Francisco was early Monet. And in that time frame, he was painting Impressionist landscapes in particular that from a distance really appeared to be photographic. And yet when you got close, you realized that they were incredibly loosely constructed and you'd get up close and you'd see all these wonderful brushstrokes and impressions and wonder, you know, as you step back from it and it turns into kind of like a photograph where you squint your eyes and you see the realism, it forces you to ask, like, how does this come together? What's going on here? What's happening in my brain that makes me see it in both these ways? So I would say that my arc from XYZ photography, the computational photography technique I created at the beginning of this project and spent five years refining, was really a nod to that representationalist Hudson River School genre. And then when Deep Dream came along and I saw the opportunity to use it in a subtle way at grand scale, my stuff really kind of moved into an impressionist realm and even somewhat surrealistic. While I was developing these works, it occurred to me, well, if I'm actually following the arc of this landscape art history tradition, I should think about ways to abstract my work. I created a series called Abstract Dreams and then thought about the Cubists and their way of breaking up time and and vision. And I created a series called Infinite Dreams that are a nod to that. In my retrospective solo show I have right now in Half Moon Bay, I even created a digital piece, a vertical screen, that's my nod to the Eastern tradition of Chinese scroll painting, which is a, a whole different way of seeing landscapes. Rather than horizontal, you have works that are traditionally vertical that are meant to be read from bottom to top and make this seamless transition from 2D foreground to 3D distance in a way that's totally beguiling and fascinating. So again, a lot of this is just, you know, looking at what's come before. I like to quote David Eagleman, a neuroscientist at Stanford who wrote a book on creativity, who kind of says that, you know, Human creativity really comes down to bending, blending, and breaking what's come before. I really agree with that. And, you know, I, I think there's so many lessons to be learned from the past and, and to mash up and remix and, and so on, especially if it's in service to a specific artistic intent or motivation. Uh, so that's kind of how I work and come up with the, the things that I create. So does the surrealist intention of sort of releasing the subconscious, does that a big influence on you? I know your dreamscapes, that definitely brings that to mind for me and sort of articulating this way in which we connect with our environment on like a deeper primordial level and sort of, it, does that come from the surrealist movement for you or sort of is that a connection I'm drawing just from looking at your work after? No, there's definitely a connection. I've been enamored by surrealist painting since I discovered it as a teen, teenage boy, you know, uh, back in the day when you used to be able to get uh, Salvador Dali posters in the, in the local gift shop. But to be honest, the real, the seriousness with which I approach that has to do with my own personal philosophy that was 
honestly uh, informed significantly by my experiments with uh, psychedelics back in the 70s and 80s, uh, which you know really changed my life and and changed the way I see the world. Really opened my mind to you know the doors of perception and ways in which reality may not be what it seems. Uh, so that just really interests me, and I. I think, you know, we should always be questioning what we're seeing and my dreamscapes, especially the large printed works that I show in in the physical world, definitely make that happen. People, uh, a common thing that happens when they walk in and see one of these giant light boxes is, what am I looking at? What What is this? You know, and and I love that. I, I, I think we should always be questioning what we see. Definitely. In my mind, your work is truly experimental or a trip, may we say. Yeah. Has like individual and like viewers' reaction to your work impacted like your your artistic practice over time? Well, it's really, you know, redoubled my commitment to wanting to immerse people in these landscape art experiences. But one of the challenges that I have as a digital artist, and and again, I've been really a natively digital artist since the early 80s, is that online, I mean, think about it. The the most quality uh, screens today are 4K. If you want to spend a lot of money, you can get an 8K screen. The images I'm creating average 20 to 30K. So there's really no way to experience that detail in context without printing them at high at full resolution at grand scale and to be able to actually walk right up to an 8 by 16 foot light box like I've got in in my solo show here and see all that detail with no pixels and yet be completely surrounded and immersed in it is what really enables the landscape art experience Online, you know, I can do a progression. The images are very well received. You know, they they look great, but they become an experience in person when you print them at full resolution at 20 to 30K. So that's, that's just really reinforced my mission to get stuff in the physical world at grand scale. And just to move on to the works that you've submitted for our online exhibition, The Perfect Era, you submitted with them this beautiful artistic statement, which I would just love to read a bit about and ask you to elaborate on. So you describe the images as attempt to convey the power, the beauty and the feeling of this special part of the world and specifically this magical time and place. And you quote a specific moment mid-morning on the 29th of September, 2021, And I was wondering if you could talk us through this moment of inspiration. Sure, that was quite a day, very memorable. I remember walking on that hillside that day in a state of absolute ecstasy, just thinking to myself, I don't know if I've ever been happier. So I tend to conduct my photo expeditions in the spring and the fall. Uh, The best months are, you know, April, May and September, October. And the reason for that is I seek unsettled weather. Because I'm taking in such a wide angle, both horizontally and vertically, I can do amazing things with skies. I can create a huge cloudscape where there's some serious architecture in the sky. So unsettled weather 
which can be very unpredictable and is a difficult time to shoot, can give me that Goldilocks moment. If the sky is cloudless, for my technique, it's a lost opportunity. If the sky has no blue in it, if it's fully overcast, that's kind of glum. But that Goldilocks moment of having a partly cloudy sky, while difficult because sometimes it can rain on me and sometimes it's too clear, can create amazing moments of sun rays and rainbows and, and you know these sorts of things that can really bring out the magic. The other thing that's great about shooting in these equinox months, especially in northern latitudes like where you guys are, is the magic hour is basically all day long. In photography, people talk about shooting in the magic hour in the first hour or so before sunset and after sunrise. Well, you know, when you have northern latitude, you know, equinox timeframes, the sun casts shadows, you know, you get these raking shadows all day long. So it can be just absolutely magical. And you, you get these luminous landscape experiences, which is really what I'm after trying to create. So this was one of those moments. It was just an incredible day. You can see in the image uh, part rainbow. You know, it, it's so stressful trying to capture rainbows because they come and go so quickly. And it takes a while to capture a, you know, 36 or 72 shot panorama. But I, I've learned to work fast and sometimes I get lucky. And, and this was one of those moments. And it, it was just, I was just elated uh, that day walking around shooting these scenes and especially that one, which was my favorite. I would love to take a deeper dive into your process and the tools you used. How did these inspirations like your time in nature and these moments in weather eventually materialize into this series? Yeah, again, it was a very gradual process of experimentation. But, you know, it starts with, I alluded to these multi-row panoramas that I create. That technique came to me in a flash at a canyon in Utah almost 12 years ago, after a long time experimenting incrementally with panoramic techniques and high dynamic range techniques and so on. You know how they say necessity is the mother of invention. I was at this geological formation that there was really no other way to catch the scene than to pull all those techniques together into this, what I call XYZ photography method, whereby I capture multiple views wide, by multiple views high, by multiple exposures deep. It's not really depth. It's just gradations from dark to light. And again, that kind of forces my camera to see the world the way we do with uh, high dynamic range and, and, and wide angles and so on. As I mentioned, I sort of spent about five years refining that. And when I and I realized that I'd gotten kind of two-thirds of the way to my goal of creating beautiful images that make people feel and think. Uh, by all accounts, you know, people would, you know, they, they, they would take their breath away and they say, wow, it feels like I can walk right into this scene. Uh, so I, I knew I was on the right track. When Deep Dream came along in the summer of 2015, you know, most people spent a summer turning their family photos into psychedelic nightmares and having a laugh. Uh, and it went viral and then kind of disappeared and different AI art techniques evolved like GANs and ultimately now the, the prompted stuff, uh, the text prompt stuff you see now. 
I, however, saw right away the opportunity to use Deep Dream with a lighter touch and take my work into an, another realm. And when I created some low resolution experimentations with that, the mashup was really a match made in heaven. The, the, the sort of vibrant, luminous, sort of wide angle views that I'd been capturing just worked really well with what Deep Dream was doing with those when used sort of thoughtfully. But Deep Dream was just a piece of demo software. One of our fellow artists here uh, in this show, Alex Mordvinsive, invented it. And he you know, confirmed on our um, Twitter space the other day that it was really just a diagnostic tool to peek under the hood of Google's image recognition uh, system. So as such, it really wasn't designed to operate on 500 megapixel images like I was creating. But, you know, living and working near Silicon Valley, I know some really sharp people. And I contacted one of them who I had worked with before, Joseph Smarr, who ultimately became a principal engineer at Google. And he got really excited about helping with the project in his spare time. He then enlisted one of his best friends, who happens to be Chris Lamb, a VP at NVIDIA, who agreed to help him with it. And I got so lucky with that because these were the perfect guys to go after this. It still took them almost four months of spare time, of their spare time to superscale Deep Dream for me and to add a variety of other bells and whistles that kind of bring additional harmony and multi-level dreaming to it. And then another two months to get me a, a simple UI that I could use without them. But that, you know, when they achieved liftoff uh, with one of my giant images, I, I knew I was onto something. And I, I just went deep and created my first collection in the winter of 2016. And, you know, I'm still tapping the potential of that tool. I love what's happening now with AI and what's happened with GANs. I'm thrilled by that. But I'm really, I'm not done tapping the potential of my sort of super scale deep dream. It keeps surprising me. I keep finding new ways to use it. And even though that code base has not changed in almost eight years, Joseph and Chris helped me way back then for six years. I had, didn't have to work flawlessly. I didn't have to bug them once. And then a few months ago, it stopped working because Amazon stopped supporting the GPUs upon which it was running. Uh, so I needed to these are very busy guys with high-level jobs and young kids. I managed to talk them into restaging the software on newer GPUs. And a few nerve-wracking weeks later, I was back in business with an even faster, more powerful version of that AI. So there's a happy ending to that story. That's fascinating how you got Deep Dream, enhanced version of Deep Dream to achieve these works. And I would just like to ask you what it's like collaborating with a team of engineers and sort of how do you go about this? And do you have distinct roles in the creative process? For example, do they help you purely from a technological perspective or do all of you work together on the visually creative side? Yeah, you know, really I'm a solo artist. Chris and Joseph helped me for a four to six month period back in 2015-16. Everything was done on my own since then until recently I needed their help again for a couple of weeks. But back then, you know, that collaboration 
was really me saying, look, I, I really need help. I don't have the chops to superscale this. And these guys, they're best of friends. They've known each other since the maternity ward. Uh, they occasionally take on hacking projects in their spare time just for fun, but have always in the past created tools that would help do something, you know, that, that would actually help make something happen productively. I was the first person to ever ask them to put their efforts together in their spare time to help me express myself, to help me create artworks, which they had never done before. And when Joseph shared internally at Google the tests that I, I had done, the reaction inside Google was so positive that he got excited about helping. People were saying like, wow, finally someone's using Deep Dream for artistic purposes and not just as a novelty. Uh, so they got really excited by that reaction and, and decided to help me. And it's kind of funny. One of the things that came from that internal sharing at Google of my initial uh, proof of concepts was the famous AI researcher, Ian Goodfellow, who ultimately invented GANs. Before then, before that happened, he was writing a book on deep learning, which became the definitive textbook on deep learning. It happens to be called, ready for this, Deep Learning by Ian Goodfellow and two other authors. He approached me to do the book cover, given what he saw. And, and so that was actually my first book cover project. And then, of course, Ian went on to invent GANs, which you know, a lot of the other artists in our group show uh, have been using since. It was really just a punctuated time period where I needed help. They agreed to help because they were excited about it. And I've been pretty much a solo artist ever since. You submitted a 3D work for the exhibition, Grasmere Dreams Create Quintet Cube. I was wondering what is your broader opinions on virtual and mixed reality and where is it headed and how it can be better? Oh my God, I'm so excited about this and have been waiting for this moment for so long. You know, this was the, where we're at now, it was the dream of 40 plus years ago when I was in the 3D graphics program at Cornell. The Oculus Quest 2 really was a threshold device to be able to have that level of quality, at least a threshold level of quality in a standalone untethered headset is a true breakthrough. Something like I said, I've been waiting for for 40 years. I'm in that device pretty much daily. I, I meditate in VR about 10 minutes every morning, either in synthetic six degree of freedom computer graphics, you know, rendered environments, natural environments, or in photogrammetry based realistic environments. There are a number of experiences like this that you can get on the quest that put you, you know, like at a waterfall in Iceland that I do these standing eyes open, ears open meditations. They have soundtracks and bird sounds, and it's just really wonderful. And I, I also should mention, I have a namesake gallery on the spatial.io platform in the Oculus Quest 2. It's a you know spacious dreamscapes gallery in which I've had both public and private openings with you know 20 to 25 people at a time. It, 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 that, to have that possibility, and to be able to view my large artworks at scale, despite the limitations right now, there's still resolution issues and so on. It's just a wonderful breakthrough to have these social VR experiences. So I'm really excited about the potential future of 
uh, living in a mixed reality world, especially if we can do something to control the amount of ads that are put in front of our face. But, you know, I do a lot of traveling, walking around London to have to, uh, for example, to have to keep my phone out to see where I'm going and what I'm seeing and so on is really annoying. I'd love to just have a lightweight pair of stylish glasses that kind of show all that stuff to me in a heads up uh, kind of way. So the 3D piece that I did for the show is really a nod to that background I have in 3D graphics, that love I have in 3D graphics. That piece, just so you know, is scaled to be seven feet by seven feet, each, each of the five artworks. So it's kind of a super scale sculpture that when viewed in AR or VR has that size. And in fact, one of the NFT platforms that invited me in a group show called Illust Space is focused on augmented reality. And one of those Quintet Cubes ended up being an installation in Bryant Park, New York City, where you couldn't see it in the real world, but you could actually put up your phone or your iPad and walk around it and walk into it and so on. And that, that's just really exciting. I, you know, I, Again, I've waited decades for, for this to sort of happen. And now moving forward, what's going to be possible soon, especially with these AI art generators, is really exciting. Uh, you know, one of my colleagues from Cornell's graphics lab likes to use the phrase that computer graphics is imagination amplification. Well, AI, AI art generators, wow, talk about imagination amplification. It won't be long before we'll be able to have a social VR experience where based on the words we're saying to each other and the ideas we throw out there in, in, around, the, around the virtual fire, that the world around us changes in real time in magical ways. And, you know, part of my philosophy is that we are living in a shared waking dream. It's going to be possible soon in VR to share lucid dreams that are evolving, uh, you know, with volition on the fly in real time. Six Degree of Freedom 3D graphics. I look forward to that. And it's going to be here sooner than you think, I believe. You're very um, passionate about the future of VR and MR, but from your experience of creating 3D virtual sculptures, is there anything with the technology at the moment that you think could be improved or some issues you've come across? Specific things you think need to be worked on before we get to the point in time that you are, you've described? Yeah, absolutely. The thing that makes me the most crazy, because these problems that I'm going to talk to you about have been solved for decades, is video, images, and 3D models can be streamed in levels of detail based upon your viewing distance. That is not the way the current tools really work. And it's funny because like I said, the, the problem of streaming details of JPEG images or of video or of 3D models and levels of detail, again, this has been solved for decades. And I have had VR researchers at Facebook and Google and the Glimpse Group in New York City invite me to experiment with my giant images to bring them into VR in a way that streams these levels of detail. And they work. They, I've, I've seen it happen in different ways. 
at all three of these places with my own work. It's totally doable. And yet, you know, you have a platform like I'm using for my virtual art gallery and your 3D models are limited to 10 megabytes and so are the images and the videos hardly ever play. And that's just ludicrous. I mean, they're just not handling their server loads appropriately. They're not using these techniques like mip mapping and image streaming and levels of detail on 3D models that are solved. Get those in there, people, so that we can really, you know, I want people to be able to walk up to my giant dreamscapes in my virtual gallery and not have it pixelate. I want people to be able to, as the closer they get, the more detail comes in. I know it can be done. I've seen it at these labs. It just needs to be out there in the public. Thank you for that explanation. I wanted to know what does it mean to you to be an artist who works with AI? And do you think there is such thing as intelligence that can truly be artificial? Uh, okay, so the first part of that question is, you know, I'm super excited about what's happening right now with the art generators. I'm very bullish about it. And I think a lot of nuance has been lost with the controversy over people using AI to create images. Again, think about imagination amplification. What matters to me the most is the artistic vision and the motivation and intent behind an artwork, okay? What tools you use don't make a difference in my view. You know, a paintbrush is a tool. You know, you have a, less control than you think about how the paint is being laid down on this thing. It is a skill you can develop, but so is the skill of writing prompts that can generate interesting work. It is disruptive. You know, I think people that do art for hire and have those skill sets uh, in graphic design and, and drawing and, and painting are being impacted. I'm seeing it happen. And that's always what happens with new technologies. There's an initial backlash. But we're missing a few things about that. I think the idea is what matters the most. But at the same time, there are some things that need to be fixed that. I don't want to dismiss some of the concerns. For example, artists should not have to opt out of their art being used in these image generators. They should have to opt in. That said, I think they'd be fools not to opt in, especially if one other simple change is made to these image generators. I don't think it's possible to attribute artists that all the artists that are in, in a data set that consists of millions of artists. But when someone uses a prompt that explicitly references in the style of this particular artist, that's easy to capture in the metadata and that must be attributed. So the reason why I think artists would be fools not to opt in to these engines, especially if that gets fixed, is people doing work in your style are creating fan art. This is going to redound to your benefit. It's gonna give you more exposure Getting exposure, you know, getting to be known is one of the hardest things in art, you know, besides actually trying to make a living doing it. But I think in general, I would welcome people creating work in my style. I've seen it happen before. Uh, I just want to be attributed. I don't think these artists need to be compensated because we're all building on the shoulders of giants, but they should be attributed. So coming back to working with AI and being an artist doing that, 
I'm very agnostic about the tools that are used. I'm very open to any kind of tool, no matter how amplifying that or powerful those tools are. An extreme example I like to give is that of an exceptionally imaginative person who's got amazing original artistic visions, but happens to be quadriplegic. These tools can enable them with eyeball movement alone to drive a prompt-based AI system to create amazing artworks. Because this person has no ability to move their limbs and, and actually pick up a paintbrush or, or whatever, does that mean their visions would have no value? I think it's a good thing. I, and when technology, disruptive technology is introduced to art, like photography and so on, ultimately, after the noise settles down, it is a net positive. Consciousness moves forward. Things advance and evolve in positive ways. I think it will be a net gain. And personally, I'm really thrilled by what some people are doing with these new tools. Do you think intelligence can truly be artificial? And what does that statement really mean to you? So I think it's totally possible for machines to reach artificial general intelligence. I don't believe it's possible for machines to have a subjective experience and to achieve consciousness. I think that's something that is strictly the domain of metabolizing life forms. And there are philosophical reasons I believe in that. It's really, it comes down to the contrast between two key philosophies, that of materialism and that of idealism. I'm a metaphysical idealist. I'm just really convinced from what I've learned that you're not going to have sentient machines. You may have machines that seem sentient and that have general intelligence, but they will not be conscious. So that's where I'm at with that. Yeah. Could you tell us about any forthcoming projects that you might be working on or how you hope your practice will develop going forward? Do you feel that you might move more into the physical realm or perhaps deeper into the digital realm with VR and mixed reality or both? Any ideas, potential products, projects you've already started? Yeah, first of all, I'm super excited about my next project. I'm heading your way. In just two weeks, I'll be flying to London. I'll be spending about five to six weeks chasing vistas in a, a dozen or so heritage sites of Capability Brown, who was the 18th century landscape architect who pretty much single-handedly invented the English garden concept and radically transformed much of the English countryside. This is a combination of man-made and natural environments that is right up my alley. I'm really excited to develop that project. You'll probably see the results of that in the second half of the year, but getting back out there in the field in this creating this source photography from which to create these works just I'm like a, a racehorse chomping at the bit. I can't wait to go and I'll be sure to stop in and, at Unit London and and visit you guys when I'm there. The second part of that question regarding the physical world. So while, again, I have been nothing but a digital artist for over 40 years, my work has been natively digital pretty much since I entered the graphics lab in 1981. Until the NFT thing sort of started, everything I was exhibiting, installing, and licensing was physical. Again, partly because of this super high resolution feature of my works. 
So it's not like I'm moving into the physical realm. I've been in the physical realm and will continue to do that for all the reasons I talked about earlier. But since COVID and my jump into the NFT space, which really started with my acceptance onto the super rare platform almost three years ago, I've been really developing more digital pieces meant for digital display and consumption. So next steps further down the line, I really look forward to immersive exhibitions of my work. Unfortunately, as an emerging artist, that's not up to me. The people that have those venues would have to get excited and approach me to do that. And once that starts to happen, you know, it happens more and more. And that's why you see folks like Rafiq Anadol getting so many of those sweet gigs uh, where his stuff is being displayed at super large scale and immersive surround uh, video surrounds and so on. So I would really like to see my stuff that way. But there is a specific project that I'd really like to see happen that I've had on my website for a while. It's my swan song project vision, which is my attempt to address ecological grief and spur climate activism. In my travels, I've seen some really sad situations in the natural world due to global warming that I want to do something about. And if you go to swansong.ai, which is the domain name that I've taken for this Project Vision page, you'll see a sort of artist statement and five-minute proof of concept video for this idea for an immersive exhibition to help in those regards. Uh, I would love to see that happen someday, but again, it's not up to me. Someone would have to, you know, with the ability like the folks at uh, Art Tech House or Art Atelier de Lumière in Paris, or even uh, there are places in London that have immersive exhibitions. In fact, there's a huge immersive exhibition happening right now with David Hockney that I plan to visit that's got video all around you. I would love to see my work the way it certainly has the detail to support that kind of impact and experience. I know we'd love to see your work in an immersive zone as well. So coming to the very end, we kind of do this thing with every guest on our podcast, which is rapid fire questions. And we have four to three questions prepared. And all that we ask is you answer either in one sentence or one word. And they're purposely vague, so interpret as you may. So Phoebe will be asking questions. Okay. What or who inspires you in this space? My one word answer to that is Ikiwat NFT. I actually, a year and a half ago, created a separate Twitter account called If I Could, I Would Own This NFT, which stand, stands for I-I-C-O- if I could, I would, uh, I-I-C-I-W-O-T-N-F-T. So yeah, there's so many great artists in that space. I'm going more than one word, but check out that Twitter account. Uh, I explain why I'm interested in these artists and these particular works. And I've been remiss in posting there for a while, but Ikiwat NFT, check it out. Amazing. And if you could collaborate with any artist from any point in time, who would it be? I would love to collaborate with David Hockney on Grand Scale Landscapes. We are definitely simpatico with the inquiries and the ways we see the world and our attempts to capture that in artworks. You know, the stuff that he did with his 
a bigger picture exhibition and continues to do with springtime in Normandy and so on. And now he's, by the way, a fully digital artist. He does everything with iPads. Oh boy, I would love to spend some time with him and do a collection together, the two of us, based on the, the same landscapes. That would be wonderful. Yeah, no, that would be an amazing collaboration. I hope that does happen. <laughs> if you could change one thing about how the space is operating at the moment, what would it be? More serious collectors, fewer flippers, and zero scammers. And just real quick on, on the collector front, I, I would just say that, you know, when you look in the traditional art world of the collectors that have amassed the most spectacular and interesting and important collections, these people go deep uh, with very few artists. They'll maybe look at six to 12 artists at a time, but they really study their exhibition history, their artist statements, their critical acclaim. They get to know the artist personally. And as a result, they end up collecting art that they love that really touches them and means something to them. I'd love to see a lot more collectors like that in the space. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Moving more to traditional collector practices would be great in the space. And finally, if you could own one piece of art, physical or digital, what would it be? It would be the gigantic landscape painting, The Heart of the Andes by Frederick Edwin Church, who I think it represents the pinnacle of the Hudson River School movement and representational realism in landscape painting. That painting, by the way, was the focus of a single painting exhibition in 1859, I think, that people paid admission to see. Uh, they would be handed out opera glasses and they would sit and take in this scene. And apparently people wrote songs to it and poetry. Mark Twain wrote about it. Women would faint, <laughs> according to, you know, it was, it was like, an, it was a true landscape. Not unlike what I've been trying to create. And boy, I would love to own that. It's in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And whenever I'm in New York, I make a pilgrimage to it and stand in front of it until the museum guards ask me what the hell I'm doing and when am I going to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Daniel. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Unit on Chain, a podcast series from Unit London. Please visit www.unitlondon.com to view our curated online exhibition dedicated to creative AI on view exclusively via our website from March 15th, 2023. You can find the full catalog of information on our website and this transcript of this conversation on our blog. Make sure to follow Unit London's Twitter and Instagram. Links in the description below. Subscribe to our podcast and tune in next week, where we'll be speaking to Memo Atkin and Tom White about the nuances of machine perception and what this can tell us about our own experience of reality.